Now, brothers and sisters, please turn to the Word of God in Acts chapter 3. And I invite you to stand for the reading of, of Holy Scripture. Acts 3, verses 11 through 26. We are picking up with Peter's sermon right after the lame man was healed in the temple. And this is Peter's explanation of what Christ has done for this man. Acts 3, 11 through 26. Hear now the word of God. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us? As though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And His name... Through faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever He says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent Him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. All of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer now. Our Lord and our God, we would desire, we desire to know Your Word this morning. We desire to receive it with believing hearts. Uh, to know the testimony that You have made concerning Your Son, so Lord, grant us faith as we hear, grant us love for Christ, and do a mighty work within us to raise us up, to strengthen us in the new life that we have in Christ, and call those that do not know you to yourself. We pray this in the name of our Lord. Amen. Well, when we began the book of Acts some months ago, I suggested that an appropriate title for the book would be something like this, The Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus Through His Holy Spirit. We call it the Acts of the Apostles, and indeed the Apostles are practically on every page or chapter of this uh, book, but the Apostles are not the ultimate focus of the book. Yes, they were servants of the Lord, yes, they did great things on behalf of the Lord, but the whole point of this sermon, as Peter begins preaching in the temple, is to say to everybody, this is not about us. This man that you see healed right before your eyes, we didn't really do it. It wasn't by our own power or by our own godliness that this man is now healed. It is by the name of Jesus Christ that he is walking and leaping and praising God right before you. Verse 16 tells us that as the focus. It says, and his name, that is the name of Jesus, through faith in His name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through Him has given Him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Now, today in our, our, our passage in Acts chapter 3, I am attempting to re-preach somebody else's sermon. 
Uh, and that's rather difficult in some ways, because on one hand, we could just read the sermon and we'd be done within a few minutes as we just read it. But the goal here is to expound upon it, to expand in terms of its meaning, that we might dig deeper and understand its significance. And so may we give our attention to that as we hear Acts chapter 3. Well, we know that this sermon was preached in light of a miracle that took place. The event is this man that was at the gate, beautiful, uh, sitting day after day, and Peter and John, they come in, they say, we do not have silver and gold for you, but we do have something much better, which is, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And when we looked at this miracle last time, we observed that miracles are not an end in themselves. Miracles are signs. They point beyond themselves to the God who does the miracles and the Savior Jesus whose power enabled the miracle. It's noteworthy that as Peter preaches, he doesn't preach miracles as much as he preaches Jesus. The miracle is to point to what Jesus is doing to save the people that he is speaking to. Peter doesn't have a big healing service in the temple at this point, though indeed the apostles would do healing as they ministered in the name of Christ. That was one of the signs. But the point is always to get from the miracle which Jesus has done to the Jesus who did it and to preach Jesus in terms of who he is and what he came to do. It showed the people of Jerusalem that Jesus was present through the work of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus had come to preach glad tidings to the poor, to bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted, to bring healing to those that were sick, and ultimately to redeem those that were enslaved to sin and facing death. And we noticed last time that this event, the healing of this man, was the direct fulfillment of the words of Isaiah 35. It is the exact match of what Isaiah 35 said would happen. Uh, we read this earlier in the service in our scripture reading. Uh, not only does the prophecy of Isaiah 35 say that lame men will leap like deer, but it says that God will come and he will redeem his people. He will do great things in the earth. Just listen to a portion of Isaiah 35 as part of our introduction here. Isaiah 35 verse 4. It says, say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. For waters shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So this is what's happening. Peter is saying to them, Jesus has come, Jesus is, has died, Jesus is risen, and now He is bringing His salvation to the earth. And this man who was once lame for over 40 years is now leaping. It's a picture of how God is restoring all things through Christ. Now as we go into this sermon today, I want to divide it into three sections. And rather than just go verse by verse, I'm going to rather divide it into the three main topics as I see it that... Uh, Peter brings out for us. And here are those three topics. First, we're going to look at the message about Jesus. What did Peter have to say about Jesus Christ? Because Jesus is the central, the focal point of the message he's preaching. So first, the message. Secondly, we will look at the response that is called for to the message. So the message and then the response. And the response is, repent and turn to God. That's the command of the sermon. And then the third thing that we'll look at are the blessings that follow that response. If there is a repentance and a turning in response to the message, then there are the blessings that come, the blessings of sins blotted out, the blessings of the times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord. So those are the three things, the message, the response, and then the blessings that follow. Now, as we look at these uh, sermons in uh, Acts, especially these sermons that are preached to the Jews and then to the larger Gentile audiences, we need to remember that these sermons have a very evangelistic focus. They're calling for faith and in repentance. They're presenting the message of Christ sometimes for the very first time, like on Mars Hill. Uh, Paul is proclaiming Jesus to people that are not even familiar with the Old Covenant Scriptures. And so, as we go through these sermons, these sermons that 
that I seek to bring to you are going to have an evangelistic uh, focus to them because that's what the sermons and acts bring out. Now, in thinking about that, we might say, well, if we are listening to this sermon as those that already believe in Christ, do we need to be evangelized? Do we need evangelism, as it were? Well, evangelism, of course, is just preaching the gospel, what the word means, to proclaim the good news about Jesus. And I would say that whether you are a Christian that has been walking with the Lord for 50 to 60 years, or whether you are not walking with Christ, you need to hear the gospel. Because even as we grow in Christ, we do mature, we never move beyond the basics of the Christian life, which is faith in Christ, repentance. Obedience to the Lord. We don't move beyond the school of faith and repentance. We grow only deeper into it. And so there's different ways in which we need to receive this message. If you are walking with the Lord, you have been walking with the Lord for a long time, this is a call of recommitment to the life of faith and repentance. And for those that are not walking with the Lord, it is an urgent call of to believe in the Lord, to turn to Him today. And later in in the book of Acts, we'll have opportunity to look at many different topics. Acts not only gives us this uh, apostolic proclamation of the gospel, but we'll have so many different uh, fascinating topics to delve more deeply into as we proceed. So let's begin then with the message of the sermon. What was the, the focal point of who Peter is proclaiming? Well, clearly the focus of the message is Jesus as glorified and as risen. So many times in Acts, the focus is upon the resurrection of Christ. And yes, they speak of the death, they speak of His ascension, but much a focus is given to the resurrection of Christ. Notice the opening of the sermon. We'll look at both the opening of the sermon and then the end of the sermon, which are the bookends that Peter gives us to this message. And it gives us a sense of what's central. Verse 12. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate. So what does he say? He says, I want you to know that the God that you believe in, he's speaking to the Jews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant God, He's the same God that sent His Son Jesus and now has glorified His Son, His servant Jesus, before you all. He has glorified Him through His resurrection and in His going to the right hand of God. Jesus is now glorified. And then also at the very bookend of the sermon, Acts 3.26, notice the emphasis upon the resurrection. He says, Uh, to the Jews, to you first, God, having raised up His servant Jesus, sent Him to bless you in turning every one of you away from your iniquities. So that's the focus again. Jesus rose from the dead for a very particular purpose, which was to bless the world. To bring, bring blessings to all the nations. And to you first, He says to the Jews. To bring blessings to the whole world and the seed of Abraham by turning you away from your iniquities. Now, there's so much that we could say about Peter's message about Jesus. I don't have time to unfold all of the different titles and descriptions that Peter gives of Jesus. It's really remarkable how much he packs into just a few verses. I mean, if I was just to list some of the things he tells us about Jesus in a very compact way, listen to this list. He, he tells us Jesus is glorified in His resurrection. He calls Jesus the holy and righteous servant of God. He calls Jesus the Prince of Life, whom they killed. It's a very fascinating paradox to consider. How do you kill the Prince of Life? Jesus suffered for sins in fulfillment of the prophets. He says Jesus suffered, just as the prophets would say. Jesus is the great prophet of God, and if you don't listen to Him, you will be cut off from the people. And then He tells us that Jesus is the seed of Abraham as well, in whom all the families of the earth are blessed. So there's so much here, but what I want to do is I want to focus in on what he says in verse 26. Verse 26 is very simple. It's very straightforward about why Jesus came, why he died, why he rose from the dead. And it says this. 
To you first, God, having raised up His servant Jesus, sent Him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, that promise given to Abraham, right as Abraham is called out of this foreign nation of the Ur of the Chaldees, God comes to Abraham, He says, I'm going to call you, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to call you into this land, and in your seed, of which Abraham had none at that time, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That is what now has come to pass, Peter says, in the resurrection of Christ. Now this word blessing, we, we, we use this word frequently. Uh, it's common in Christian speech to speak about blessing. Uh, we sometimes will say things like, may the Lord bless your week. And it's a good word. It's a very important biblical word for us to understand. And as we think about blessings, uh, we can list so many different blessings that God bestows upon us as His followers, as well as upon His whole creation, His undeserving creation. You think of the blessings of food and rain, sunshine, warm weather, homes to live in. So many undeserved material benefits that the Lord sends to a sinful, rebellious world. And and He blesses us abundantly, doesn't He? But what verse 26 sets forth for us is what we might say is the ultimate blessing. The blessing of blessings. The thing that we need the very most, and that is to be turned from our life of iniquity and sin and to be turned back to God. Jesus came to bring this blessing, to turn you away from your life of iniquity and sin back to Him. We know that the natural way of fallen mankind is is that we all turn to our own way. Remember the words of Isaiah 53? It says, We are all like sheep who have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. Millions and billions of sheep, millions and billions of human beings all going their own way. And all a way of destruction. Eternal destruction. Brothers and sisters, we were never meant to go our own way. You were never meant to make your own path. You were never meant to define your own existence as our culture loves to tell you that you should. That is the path of destruction and death. And Peter is saying that God has sent Jesus. He's raised up Jesus to turn you from your iniquities, from going your own way, the way of sin and death. And to, talk, to call them to repentance, he tells them that you did something very evil. He's speaking to the whole, all these Jews that are gathered in the, in the temple at this time, and he says, you've done something very, very evil. Verse 14, he says, you denied the Holy One and the just, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Now, he's speaking to a very broad audience here in the temple. Not all of these Jews have direct uh, involvement. Uh, not all of these Jews, of course, were amongst the leaders of God's people that had the, some of more of the decision-making capacity with the trial. But in a broad sense, he's saying, all of you Jews here in Israel, you rejected your Messiah, and you had this participation in killing the holy and the righteous servant of God. And he says, this is very evil. You, you were so evil, your heart was so wicked that you asked for a murderer to be granted to you instead of the holy and the just servant of God. And yet this was, of course, the way in which their very salvation was accomplished. It was by the will of God that this would take place and they would be saved by this sacrifice. But he says, it was wicked for you to ask for a murderer instead of the holy and just servant of God. Now I want you to ponder this for a few moments. What does it take for somebody to ask for a murderer to be released and have an innocent person put to death? When you know that, when you realize 
That somebody is innocent and righteous. To some degree, I think the Jews recognized that, although they, they accused him of things. They asked for a murderer, the very person that should be put to death. They said, let's have him, release him, throw him back into the community. But the holy and just servant of God, kill him, get rid of him. How does a heart come to that conclusion? Well, at, at root, I think this shows how insane and evil sin is when it corrupts the heart. What sin does to our hearts is it makes us love evil and hate good. And this is a point of connection for us, brothers and sisters, as we hear this message. Because we might say, look, I had nothing to do with killing Jesus. I was not there. And of course, if I was there, I would have stopped it. I would have been one of those faithful servants. And that's easy to say at this point, you know, as we're standing here hearing the sermon. But what I want you to see is that apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ to transform our natural hearts... We love evil rather than good. When people encountered Jesus, they did not like Jesus. This actually connects somewhat to the exhortation our brother gave. You know, people are attracted to the presentation of Jesus. But remember that in Jesus' actual day, people didn't like Jesus. They were offended by him in many cases. They hated Jesus because he came as the light of the world to expose the darkness of their hearts, that he had come to save them from that darkness. But they said, we love our darkness. We do not want you. We will not have you. These are our hearts as well unless we are transformed by the saving grace of God. We would rather have our sins than have Jesus. We would have our anger and our hatred and our malice in our hearts rather than Jesus. We would have our covetousness, the things that we so long for and desire in this life, we would have those things instead of Jesus. We would have our stuff, our idols, rather than Jesus. We would have our sexual immorality rather than Jesus. This is what they did when they denied the holy and the just one and asked for a murderer to be given to them. And so they needed cleansing from these sins. It wasn't just that they killed Jesus. That was the, the apex of their wickedness. But they needed saving from all kinds of sin, just as we do as well. And they needed their sins blotted out. They needed to be turned from their wandering ways into iniquity. And, and Peter says that it was through the sufferings of Christ and through the resurrection of Christ that they are to be blessed in these ways. Verse 18, Those things which God foretold by the mouth of all His prophets that the Christ would suffer, He has thus fulfilled. Peter here, he doesn't expound all the meaning of the sufferings of Christ. He'll do that in other contexts than Acts. And this sermon might be just an excerpt from all that he said. But he speaks of two events. He speaks of the sufferings of Christ and his resurrection. And he says that through these things, blessings come to the world. Blessings come to all you who repent and turn to God. Now that's just a portion of the message of what Peter said about Jesus. There's more that we could say, but I want to now move to the response that Peter calls for. Verses 19 and 20. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before. The response to this message is, is very simple. It can be summarized in two words. Repent and turn. Now you'll notice in the New King James text it says repent and be converted. And that's a fine uh, rendering in terms of the word converted. You, uh, uh, traditionally and originally meant to turn. Uh, but in, the, in this particular translation it suggests that it's a passive. And it's not a passive. It's actually an imperative verb that says repent and and turn. There are two commands given by the apostle to his hearers. Now we grant that nobody can repent or be converted or turn apart from the working of the Holy Spirit to give them life. But that's the point is that as Peter preaches, the Holy Spirit will work in the hearts of those that are hearing to enable them to receive Christ and to come to him. That's how we, we preach. We call people to repent and to turn to God. We, we don't know how and who uh, will come. We know it will be by the working of the Spirit of God that that happens. 
But these are the two commands that he gives, and so we need to consider the meaning of these things. What does it mean to repent? What does it mean to turn in response to the preaching of the good news about Jesus? Well, the word repentance, as we have uh, said many times in reviewing this word, the word repentance means to think again, to rethink things, to think differently about things. It is a, a description of what needs to happen in the mind. You need to come back to these things and you need to reconsider them and you need, need to adopt God's view of, of yourself and of Christ and of God himself, and then you need to reject your thinking about yourself that you've made up and your way of living and thinking. To repent is to say, I have been thinking wrongly about this. I've been acting wrongly based upon this wrong thinking, and I now reject that thinking. I turn from it. You realize that you've been going down the wrong path for far too long, and you stop And you say, I'm going to turn around. This is the wrong path for me to be on. Imagine a a forest hike that you take. You you go up into the woods of of Colorado, and there's so many beautiful trails in our state. And and these trails have been often carefully designed uh, with with maps and paths. And and you're, you're supposed to stay on that trail. If you diverge from that trail, as some do, you might find that you are lost very quickly. And perhaps find yourself in danger, or at worst, find yourself dead as you wander off that forest path. Perhaps some of you have have gone hiking and you've said, I'm going to just get off the path a bit, I'm just going to forge my own way. And if you've ever been in a very dense forest, you, you know that you can get lost a lot quicker than you thought you might. You can lose your bearings very quickly as you're down deep in a forest and you don't have the sky and Uh, any point of reference in which to figure out which way you should go. You don't have a GPS, perhaps, and you find yourself lost and wandering. And kids, this is what happens when people decide to make their own way in life. They say, I don't like God's path. I don't want God's path. I'm going to make my own path. I will find my own way. And yet they find that eventually they're lost. They're stuck. And eventually, they're without food and water, and eventually they perish in the wilderness because they decided to go their own way rather than sticking to the safe path that had been laid out for them. And so so it is with all of us who turn away from the safe path that God has laid out. And and of course, as I've said, that, that is the way of all natural fallen mankind. Everybody's wandered off the path by nature. Everybody is turned to their own way, and we need God to bring us back. We need God to turn us from our iniquities and to set us on the right path, that, that highway in which we are redeemed, that highway of holiness that we read about in Isaiah 35, in which the redeemed of the Lord walk safely. And so we do not want to make our own path. It is a deadly decision to make your own path in life. And so repentance is a change of mind. It is to say, I will not make my own way anymore. I reject my own way. I reject my own thoughts. I receive what God has said about me. I am a sinner. I receive what God has said about Christ, His Son, and I receive Him as my Savior. Now, not only is repentance, I think, a change of mind, but it also involves a change of heart. And we don't separate these things because as you come to think differently about things, it affects everything about you. It affects your very heart disposition towards sin. You begin with grief and with hatred of your sin. You turn away from it. You see your sin in a new light. You think, this is a very evil thing. This is a very destructive thing. I must turn from these things. And that is why Peter, he says, not only repent, but turn. That is the, the second word that he gives. But before we get to turn, I want to ask all of us this question today about repentance. I want to ask you the question, have you thought about these things again? That is what repentance is involving. It's a change of mind. And so as Christians, there's, there's a, a sense in which our lives are continually 
about changing our minds. That's what Romans 12 says. We're renewing our minds. We're rethinking things. And so we need to think again about what Peter is proclaiming to us today. And some, they they hear the gospel and they say, yes, I've heard these things before. I've heard that language. I've heard the gospel many times before. But I'm not asking whether you've ever heard the gospel. I'm asking whether you've actually thought about it and thought about yourself in relation to it. Have you come to grips with the message that the Bible brings about sin and judgment, salvation, eternal life, and the judgment to come? I'm asking you to think once again about yourself and about this message. And if you are living that life of repentance and faith in Christ, then what we are called to is a continual turning back to God, a continual turning away from sin, a continual walking in newness of life. Now when Peter says repent and turn, we need to remember then that it is not simply thinking about these things. It also involves a change of direction. Peter is not calling for a mere verbal confession of sin. He's not saying you just need to acknowledge that you've done wrong. But he's saying you need to now turn from those things. Repentance and turning are inseparable from one another. A man or a woman who is truly repenting is a man or a woman who is turning. It is a person that is doing a 180 degree direction away from sin towards God. They are directionally changing where they are going. And that of course is enabled by the power of God. You once saw that you were running down the path of destruction, but because you are repenting and you are turning, you are running towards God. And so that is the response that Peter calls for. He says, you've heard this message about Jesus. You've heard what he has come to do. Now repent and turn. Turn back to your God. And now he describes the blessings. And these are uh, wonderful blessings for us to contemplate, to revel in as we, we, if we have received the grace of Christ as the people of God, we must rejoice in these blessings that Peter describes. And they're both found in verses 19 and 20. And I would add verse 26 is descriptive of the blessings as well, that Jesus turns us. Look at verse 19 and 20. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before. Now, Peter here gives us these very concrete pictures of what the blessings of the gospel are. And these these kinds of pictures always help us in understanding the blessings of our salvation. And we need to review these things. We need to see what is it that Peter is setting forth as the rich blessings of the gospel that come to all who believe and repent. Well, the first word picture is described here when he says, if you repent and turn your sins will be blotted out. And what Peter is simply describing is what the Bible elsewhere calls the forgiveness of sins. The blessings of salvation is that our sins are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. All of our sins, past, present, and future as well, are covered through the blood of Christ. They are no longer held against us. We who are guilty are declared innocent in God's sight because by faith we have received Christ. We are resting upon Him alone, knowing that we can't rest in ourselves. And all of our sins are blotted out. Now I said this was a picture, but I don't know if the picture is immediately apparent, but it is a picture. And the picture is this. It's it's of like a court record. You have a piece of paper, or maybe usually in the context of a courtroom, it's stacks and stacks of papers. And you have been accused of a crime. You're called to the courtroom. And perhaps in this illustration, you are guilty of the specific crime that you are charged with. There is an indictment. That indictment has your name upon it. It says, we charge this individual with these crimes. And the witnesses come up and they their perspective, they, they show your guilt through their own witness testimony, and then 
all the court proceedings follow through, and it comes to you, and, and you are asked, how do you plead? And, and you say, honestly, guilty. I plead guilty. And then that indictment changes simply for not, not just charges now, but now those charges become actual crimes on your record. You are a criminal in the eyes of the law. You have done those things that the law accused you of doing. And so when we think about sins being blotted out, this, this verb actually refers to the blotting out, the removing from sight something that would otherwise be in writing against you. It's as if the, the file cabinets of your life are opened up, all the records are taken out, the thousands and thousands of pages of all the things that you have done to offend a holy God, they're laid out before you on a table, and then God, He takes His white erase marker, and He removes every single offense from your record. That is what the Lord does through Christ. He blots out our iniquities. They are removed from sight. The records are no longer held against us anymore. And that's indeed how the word was used in the New Testament and other Greek literature. Sometimes people would take a piece of writing and they would cover up something. They would remove something so you couldn't see it anymore. Sometimes the blotting would happen with black ink, but I like to think of this as the white erase marker because it fits so well with the fact that we are made white through the blood of the Lamb. And that is what God has promised to do. Even back in Isaiah 43.25, the same language was used. The Lord declared to His people, He said, I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us praise the Lord that our sins are blotted out, no longer to be brought back up, no longer to be used against us. And they are all blotted out by the God who has the ability to keep perfect records. The God who knows all things, past, present, and future. And there's so many ways that the scriptures describe the blessings of the forgiveness of sins. And I, I think the scriptures give us all these pictures, perhaps because of our doubting, unbelieving hearts, fight against some of these promises. We just can't fathom the, the fact that God would actually forgive us of all of our sins. We... We're told, as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. We can't bring east and west together. It is not possible for us to do it. And the promise we heard earlier in Micah 7, He cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, never to be recovered again. We could go out in our, our fishing boat and we could try to cast the line down. We could say, can we pull these sins back up? But Lord says, they're too deep. You're, not, you're never going to get them up once again. Our, our consciences might start to do that, but then the promises of God declare to our consciences, you are forgiven, you are cleansed, you are made white in the blood of the Lamb. Don't pull those sins back up anymore. Simply rejoice that Jesus has saved you from them. So this is the first blessing that Peter describes. Your sins will be blotted out. Now the second picture is, is a, also a very beautiful, very powerful picture to give us a sense of the, the blessings of the Gospel. And he says... Repent and turn so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before. Now this word refreshing, this is the only time in the entire New Testament that this word occurs. It's a, a very unique description of the blessings of salvation. It's a wonderful description that we need to unpack here. Now, as people have read over the years this promise of the times of refreshing, there's been a lot of different theories about what this means and when it happens. And there are some who believe that this is only describing blessings that come in a certain season when Jesus returns in His second coming. We have to wait until the second coming for times of refreshing to come. They say, no, no, it's not going to happen yet. Because in verses 21, it says that heaven must receive Christ until the times of the restoration of all things. And so they tie that back into verse 19 and they say, times of refreshing, that's going to be a great thing. It's coming at the second coming of Christ. So just wait for it and hope for it. Well, I don't find that explanation compelling for a few reasons. I think it not only strains the grammar in some way, but I also find it rather unreasonable that Peter would hold out these blessings to his hearers 
who would never, ever get to experience them in the present at all. They would have to wait for the second coming of Christ. And others have said, well, this describes a future seasons in Christian history when uh, refreshing comes, perhaps when mass conversions take place uh, amongst the nations, particularly in a a post-millennial kind of perspective, we would say there are times of refreshing ahead. And I actually agree with that. That's, I'd say, yes, the Scriptures do give us good confidence that there's going to be seasons of amazing uh, blessing and, and God's work of conversion of the nations. And I don't know how long that's going to take. I don't know when that's going to happen. But we have good reason to know and believe that Jesus is going to bring such amazing things to the world. But I, I want to present this a bit more practically than either of those approaches. And I want to suggest that the times of refreshing that Peter describes is a blessing that comes to some degree or another to everyone who repents and turns to the Lord. I don't think it's limited just to some future season or the second coming of Christ. I believe that Peter's intention in setting forth these blessings of sins being blotted out in times of refreshing is to to tell them that God has great things for you right now. And one of the reasons I I think this is likely is that a very similar language is found in Acts 2, verse 38, when he says, Repent and be, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Very similar language, and I think it's arguable that the times of refreshing that come is descriptive of what the Holy Spirit of God does as people turn to the Lord, whether it's in the micro sense of one person. Or in the macro sense of thousands of people coming to the Lord at the same time. It could be either one. Now I want to go back to the word refreshing as we make some application of this. This word refreshing, it, it has to do with a, a cooling where there has been much heat. It's like you're out in the desert and it's hot and it's dry and you're parched and you're thirsty and you so badly need water and then somebody brings you these gallons of fresh cold ice water and not only do you drink some, but you pour it on your head, you just, you're refreshed. You're cooled down. And that's what the word refers to, this refreshing. It could be either this cold wind that comes to cool you down, or this water that comes to parch you, of, uh, for, uh, to help your parched thirst to be recovered. And, and Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he preached on this sermon, he did a great job of drawing out this picture of refreshing. So I want to adopt his, his picture uh, somewhat. He he said, picture a, a crowded, tight room full of people. You're arm to arm with these people in this crowded room. There's hundreds of people. There's, there's no open windows. There's no fresh air. There's no air conditioning. Outside, it's hot. It's 100 degrees. It's humid outside. And you're all packed into this room, stifled, hot, wearied by the heat, going to perish eventually from heat exhaustion. And you desperately want an open window. You desperately want some room. You desperately want some uh, refreshing to come from some water, but you can't have it. You don't see it. And Lloyd-Jones in this illustration, he says, this is what the life of sin is like. Sin is stifling. It is wearying. And though we seek relief through sin, we find it only makes things worse. Have you experienced the extreme heat of certain climates in the American South? You have these temperatures of 110 degrees with 80% humidity added on top, and it's just stifling. You, can't, you feel like you can't breathe. It's just oppressive if you're just sitting within that. And imagine then being in a tight room in that. Imagine such heat, uh, no airflow, the further intensifying effects of that heat. It's suffocating, it's wearying, it's, it's ultimately a, a fatal, it will have an ultimately fatal effect upon you. And that is indeed what sin does to us. It is stifling. It, it is wearying. It, it does not bring refreshment. It doesn't bring relief. It's like trying to drink salt water, hot salt water to relieve your thirst. It only makes you more dehydrated. But what Peter is saying, he says you repent and you turn to the Lord and seasons of refreshing will come. The, the winds, the cooling winds of the Holy Spirit will come. The life-giving waters of Jesus Christ will flow to you. 
And let's remember that Isaiah 35 is part of the background of this sermon. What did it say in Isaiah 35, 7? The parched ground shall become a pool. The thirsty land, springs of water. In a habitation of jackals where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. It's a similar kind of picture of refreshment coming to the people of God. And so this promise of times of refreshing is not something that is way out in the distance and someday we'll we'll eventually be able to have some refreshing. But no, I think Peter is saying, come to the Lord and you will have times of refreshing that come from His presence. And just think of, brothers and sisters, about the, the list of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Does that sound refreshing to you? The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Does that sound refreshing to experience those things? To experience love in a world where the love of so many has grown cold. That is refreshing. To experience joy in a world where depression and suicide rates are spiraling. That is refreshing to us when we experience that. To be kind and to experience kindness in a very ungodly, malicious, and rude world. That is refreshing to us. And that refreshing comes from the life of Christ that flows to His people. And and as we talk about it on an individual level, I don't want to neglect the corporate and historical blessings of this promise. Because as people have said, well, there are future seasons of refreshing or times of refreshing on a broader scale. And I agree with that. I don't want to downplay that. Uh, We can see this in history. Church history bears witness to this fact. You just look at any of the significant times of missionary advance in the world and what did it bring to people groups and communities and cultures it brought times of refreshing we always love to come back to the amazing example of the uh, the cannibals of the south seas i mean what times of refreshing come when previously everybody was killing each other and eating each other and now they're loving each other and serving each other that is amazing refreshment from the presence of the lord Just look at any of the revivals or the reformations that have happened throughout church history and it is God bringing life to the land. He is refreshing this dry and barren wilderness and bringing forth life within it. What refreshment came to the church when the gospel of God's grace was recovered in the Protestant Reformation? Think of the burdened consciences of the people in Europe. Their consciences so weighed down through Rituals and pilgrimages and indulgences and only to find out that still they might have thousands of years of cleansing to go through in purgatory before they could come to be with their God. What what a burden. What weariness. What stifling effect such teaching has upon people. But then when the gospel of God's grace was recovered and it was faithfully proclaimed, what refreshment came to the people of God. What consciences were unburdened by this truth and what sense of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit the people of God now felt as they reveled in the free grace of God. This is what has happened time and time again. God has sent times of refreshing to the world. You think of what times of refreshing came to Germany and the Netherlands and England and Scotland as the the gospel was sounded forth throughout those lands and was received by men and women and children, it transformed civilizations. Times of refreshing. And I hope as you hear this description, you think, oh, I would love more times of refreshing to come from the presence of the Lord. And I'm here to tell you, thankfully, I think that the interpretation of this passage is sound, that we do not have to wait Uh, until the second coming of Christ for times of refreshing. We don't have to have a system that says, it's going to be weary from here on out. You're just going to have to wait till till death and then uh, the second coming. And and yes, I'm thankful that, of course, the ultimate uh, blessings, the ultimate times of refreshing will come in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't want to be unrealistic. We have tears, we have sorrow in this life, but we also experience times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. And so, think about your own life. Think about your own family, whether your immediate family or your extended family, the family you grew up in. I I think all of us know something of the stifling, wearying, 
exhausting effects of sin. Do you know something of the burdensome effect that sin produces? Just think about what what effect sin has upon our homes when we are not repenting and turning to the Lord. It's stifling, it's wearying. What, What is a home like when you have an unloving husband and father, a disrespectful or selfish wife, and children who routinely dishonor their parents. What, what, what is that home like? It's wearying. It's, it's, it's not a place that you really want to be when this is just a continual pattern where these patterns of sin are not dealt with and you're just weighed down by the exhaustion of sin. But when a husband or a father repents, when a wife or a mother turns to the Lord and they say, I have been thinking wrongly, I have been acting wrongly, I now turn back to the Lord. When children say, I am grieved by my dishonoring and unloving behavior. I have so dishonored my parents. I am grieved. And they repent and they turn to the Lord. What does the Lord do? He he sends times of refreshing to our homes. As we turn back and we worship the Lord Jesus Christ and we say, save me from my sins. Change me. Transform me. Turn me away from my iniquities. What comes but times of refreshing? These are blessings that the Lord is holding out to us. And we can experience them in greater measure every time we turn back to the Lord. There are times of refreshing ahead for us as we are conformed to the image of Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the the message that the Apostle Peter has brought to us today. Repent, turn to the Lord. Whether it's the first time, whether it's the 10,000th time as you deal with sin in your life, and times of refreshing will come and your sins will be blotted out. These blessings are for us, brothers and sisters, and let us pray that those times of refreshing would come to our homes, to our hearts, to our church, and to our community. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we are thankful for the blessings that come through Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and exalted to your right hand. We thank you for all that you have done in the earth. We glorify the name of Jesus Christ who has brought transformation to this earth through the power of the gospel. We thank you also for all that you have done in our lives through the gospel. And as we hear about these cooling, refreshing seasons, we pray that we would see that work in greater measure in our lives. And wherever there is a stifling of that, wherever there is a resisting of your truth, I pray that we would repent and we would turn. And that you would do great things within us. That we might rejoice and be refreshed by what you have done. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.